Welcome to the HeartStrong Discipleship Podcast. Visit heartstrong.life forward slash login to access the notes from today and all the benefits of our membership community. One to the two and two to the three. Let the world see the Holy Trinity. Let's become HeartStrong Disciples of Jesus together. As I pray, yesterday Rob brought us through the book of Numbers with Balaam, and the last oracle is found in verse 17 of 24, where he says, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. And so, Father, today we want to say thank you that hidden in your word in the Old Covenant are the truths of the new covenant. It is one story. It's unfolding, and the natural events are revealing spiritual truth. And so, Lord, we thank you today for Kim. We thank you for your anointing and your blessing upon her life. We thank you for the freedom and the liberty that she feels in her heart just to share. And, Lord, we're ready to receive this morning. And so thank you for what you're going to do in each of us. We cast all our cares on you, even at this early hour of the day, knowing that you care for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. That's awesome. I love where Pastor Barry goes. Yeah, chapter of murder and mayhem. So honestly, I read the chapter and went, oh, Lord. And then the second thought was, thank God I never had to teach this chapter to the kids. Where would you start? Um, Anyway, so for those of you that don't know me, my name is Kim. I get to... Go to the Canada branch of Life Center, I guess is what you'd say. And I usually teach kids. So that's my disclaimer, okay? And I love teaching kids. I've been doing it for a couple of decades and they're awesome. And it's an incredible privilege. And uh, part of what I get to do as well is I get to teach something called Bible Boot Camp on a Wednesday night. It's kind of hot strong for kids, the online version on a Wednesday night. And we had this verse as our, we call BBC One, so Bible Boot Camp One, um, a couple of years ago. And I just want to read it because before we start, I think this scripture is so important. Second Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. It says, God has breathed life into all scripture. It's useful for teaching us what is true. It's useful for correcting our mistakes. It's useful for making our lives whole again. And it's useful for training us to do what is right. And when you look at that scripture in light of this chapter today, that's really about prayer for today. So before we get started, I know I did this Monday. This is going to be our morning aerobics again. So I'm going to do prayer positions with everybody. And let's just ask the Lord to just uh, go before us. So let's do this, guys. Prayer positions. All right. Let's pray. Father, once again, Holy Spirit, I want to thank you for your incredible faithfulness to us, Lord. Lord, just as we read that scripture, Father, I pray that you come, Holy Spirit, teach us. Teach us what is right, Father. We invite you to come make our lives whole again, Father. Correct our mistakes, Father, and train us to do what is right, Lord. In your mighty name we pray. Amen. 
All right. So before we go any further, I just want to, and I have to do this because I want to acknowledge the following resources that I use. The Bible Project, once again, cannot sing and encourage you to watch their YouTube videos enough. They're amazing. The Enduring Word, the Spoken Word, which we're going to do later today, and then Discovering Jesus in the Old Testament, which is a Nancy Guthrie's book. It's kind of the textbook we use for Bible Bootcamp. Amazing. And on that note, after this, I do want to play just a nine-minute video. Um, it's a spoken word video. It's just it's so incredibly powerful just talking about numbers. But let's get into our July memory verse. Does anybody know this off by heart yet? Has anyone got it memorized? No? Anybody want to read it then? I need a volunteer. Oh, Judy. Thank you, Judy. Awesome. Thanks, Judy. Romans 12, 1 to 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Judy. That was awesome. All right, so let's get started. We are in Numbers 25 today. And well, the whole chapter is basically Israel's sin with Moab. Uh, so we've just seen uh, the king of Moab, Balak, trying to get the prophet Balaam to curse Israel. And God just says, no, it's not happening. What he is blessed will be blessed. So the new strategy. So here we go. I just want to read the first three verses of this chapter, and they're incredibly powerful. It says, while Israel was staying in Shittim, the men began to indulge in sexual immorality with the Moabite women who invited them to the sacrifices to their gods. The people ate the sacrificial meal and bowed down before these gods. See, Israel yoked themselves to the ball of Peor. Oh, that word yoked. And the Lord's anger burnt against them. So basically what's happened in these first three verses, and I find it so amazing. I mean, Balak has just taken Balaam to all these high places to try to curse Israel. There's Israel in the valley, and this is what they're getting up to. It's just, yeah, God is so good to us. We, even when we're faithless, he is faithful, right? So what we see in this chapter is the women of Moab have enticed and seduced the men of Israel to both sexual sin and idolatry. Now, just so you know, these two practices were very commonly linked in a very perverse form of idol worship back in those times. You see it quite a bit in those in the ancient world. Also, just one other note, in this chapter, you'll notice that they talk about the Moabite women and then the Midianite women. Both are mentioned. And just so that you know, the Midianites were a nomadic tribe and they would they were just dwelling in large numbers in Moab at that time. So you'll see it starts with talking about the Moab women, but then later in the chapter, it's talking about the Midianite woman that the Israelite uh, Israelite man brings in. And that's why. OK. Then we read about Baal, just so for everyone knows, Baal was this great, well, for them anyway, a great Canaanite god of fertility. And the worship of Baal was a constant enticement for the children of Israel. It's one of those things that they struggled with quite a bit. In verse three, we see this, that the Lord's anger burnt against them. Now, like I mentioned in chapter 22 to 24, we see that Balak couldn't pay Balaam enough to get God to curse Israel. But now in this chapter, Israel actually is cursed. And it's because of their very own sin against the Lord. And the curse you'll see later in this chapter shows itself um, as a plague. 
And this plague ended up killing 24,000 people. And this is the part that in, also, in some ways breaks my heart. What the enemy couldn't do through war and witchcraft, Israel did to itself through their disobedience. So remember when um, the king of Moab, Balak, is freaked out because he's seen what, Israelites, what the Israelites did in chapter 21, right? They defeated the Amorites and the Bashanites and all those people. That's why he was so terrified of them, right? So he knew that because God was with them, he couldn't beat them militarily. So that's why he kind of resorted to witchcraft with Balaam. Well, that didn't work either. And now Israel's cursed anyway, and it's because of their disobedience. And before we look at that and go, how horrible, <laughs> that principle applies to us today as well. Do you know that the strongest attack of Satan against us can never do as much harm as our own sin and rebellion against the Lord? I love how a guy called Paul explains this. He says, the Moabites, now being neighbors to the Israelites and finding themselves unable to effect their design against Israel by war and witchcraft, they now found another way. In the same way, Satan's violence and sorcery can have no lasting influence on the believer, but if he can lead us into sin, we can be destroyed. And we see this in James 1, verse 13 to 15. It says, let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. And we see that here for Israel. I, I read that and I was like, okay, Holy Spirit. You know those, when I quoted Second Timothy? It's useful for correcting our mistakes. Holy Spirit, thank you for your grace and mercy. And please come and correct our mistakes. Psalm 26 verse 2 says this, like a flattering sparrow or a darting sparrow, an undeserved curse will not land on its intended victim. A curse cannot alight without a cause. Israel's been disobedient and they've actually cursed themselves now. But there's another part to the story that I actually, must be honest, I didn't really realize. Still, I started studying this and it involves Balaam. Rob spoke yesterday about this prophet having unyielded areas in his life. And in this chapter, we learn more about them. Now, we know he was a prophet for hire. Issue number one. Second Peter chapter 2, verse 15 to 16 says this. Forsaking the right way, they have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain for wrongdoing, but was rebuked by his own transgression. A speechless donkey spoke with human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. Jude 1.11 says this, like Balaam, they deceived people for money. So we know Balaam had a money issue. But there's something even more about Balaam that we learn more. <laughs> Talk about a character issue. Here we go. Revelations chapter 2, verse 14. And in this chapter, the Lord is actually addressing the church in Pergamum. And this is what he says. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak, to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. That's where we are right now, chapter 25. That's what he's referring to. So Balaam not only had a love for money issue, but he's also in some ways willing to flirt with sin. He wanted to please his employer, Balak, but he was looking for a sin loophole in essence. And we sometimes do this as well. I once had a pastor that shared the story. There was a man who had a great treasure and he needed to get it across this very steep mountain pass, rocks on one side, sheer cliffs on the other. So he gets in three truckers and he gets into audition. And the first trucker drives within a foot of the edge the whole way up. The second 
tracker goes, I can do that six inches the whole way up, as close as he can to that edge. And the third tracker, guess what? He hugged the center line. Guess who got the job? And that's what we need to be like with sin in our lives. This isn't about how close can we get to the edge with actually not actually falling over. How close can we get to sin without actually sinning? It's about hugging the center line. We spoke about that on Monday, about looking up, holding fast to Jesus. Jesus is our center line. I kind of grieve a little bit for Balaam. He heard God. He knew God. Listen, his donkey spoke to him. I mean, how much of a miracle did the man need? And we see his end in this chapter, and it's not good. So we need to hug the center line. But I'm going to read even more. In Numbers 31, verse 7 to 16. I learned to read a little bit above now after my lookup experience with John 3.16. So I'm going to start this in Numbers 31, verse 7. And in the scripture, so this is towards the end of the chapter, we now see that the Israelites have actually gone to war with Midian. And this is what's happened. They attacked Midian as the Lord had commanded Moses, and they killed all the men. All five of the Midianite kings, Evi, Rechem, Zur, Hur, and Reba, die in the battle. They also killed Balaam, son of Beor, with a sword. The wages of sin is death. Anyway, chapter uh, verse nine, then the Israelite army captured the Midianite women and children and seized the cattle and flock and all their wealth as plunder. They burnt all the towns and villages where the Midianites had lived. And after they had gathered the plunder and captives, both people and animals, they brought them all to Moses and Eliezer, the priest, and to the whole community of Israel, which was camped on the plains of Moab beside the Jordan River across from Jericho. Moses, Eliezer, the priest, and all the leaders of the community went to meet them outside the camp. But Moses was furious with all the generals and captives who had returned from the battle. Why have you let the women live? He demanded. These are the very ones who followed Balaam's advice and caused the people of Israel to rebel against the Lord at Mount Peor. They are the ones that caused the plague to strike the Lord's people. So this whole thing, this whole chapter 25 has been a little bit of a setup in some ways. Essentially, after the failure to curse Israel, Balaam actually goes and advises Balak. I can't curse these people, but you can get them to curse themselves through enticing them to rebel against their God. Send your prettiest girls among them and tell them to entice the men of Israel to immorality and idolatry. And it worked. And you know what? Unfortunately, the same pattern seems to work today too. It is such a reminder. It applies to us. It's not about how close we can get to sin without actually sinning. It's about holding the center line, holding close to Jesus. Romans 6, 23, very, the wages of sin is death. And Balaam was killed in this very battle, fighting with the Midianite women, uh, fighting with the Midianites against Israel. Numbers 25, verse 4, then goes on to the punishment. Let me just read what the Lord commands Moses to do here. So verse four, the Lord issued the following command to Moses, seize all the ringleaders and execute them before the Lord in broad daylight. So his fierce anger will turn away from the people of Israel. So Moses ordered Israel's judges, each of you must put to death the men under your authority who have joined in worshiping Baal of Peor. And as I read that, there was a couple of things that kind of just jumped out at me. And one was, so first of all, this is the punishment now for what Israel has done. And there were a couple of things that had to happen. First of all, the leaders were hung in public in daylight. Those yoked to Baal were killed. And 
when I read that, it, it kind of just reminded me of how the Lord wants us to deal with the sin in our lives. He wants us to be ruthless. When he shows us sin, we need to deal with it. You know, don't try and see how close you can negotiate with this. Just deal with it. The second thing was public sin had to be dealt with publicly. I know that's not comfortable, but we see that in the scripture. And sometimes that is essential. I have been, I grew up in the charismatic movement, as I mentioned, and back in South Africa, this actually happened a few times. Public sin had to be dealt with publicly. And the third thing that I love was, well, not love, but that spoke to me was this. They were hung at daylight. You know what? We need to bring our sin into the light. And word for first John 1 9 says this, but if we confess our sins to him, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from our wickedness. James 5 16 says to confess your sins to each other so that you may be healed. So when I look at that punishment, those are kind of the things that jumped out at me. But then later in this chapter, we learn about this amazing man called Phineas. Now, Phineas is Aaron's grandson. So he's Eliezer's son, the priest. And while everyone is weeping at the tent of meeting, and I'm not 100% sure while some of them are weeping, I'm hoping to think that some of it is in repentance uh, because of what they've done. Uh, to be honest, I think some of them are weeping because they've lost family members that have now been killed because they had yoked themselves to Baal. But while they are there in the tent of meeting, we see scripture talks about the Israelite bringing in a Midianite woman. And actually, the chapter names them. That's not kind of the way I would want to go down in history. But anyway, he brings him in. And in essence, and as gross and disgusting as this is, the scripture actually implies that they start having intercourse. And Phineas is so full to the zeal of God, so enraged that this unrighteousness can take place. He takes a javelin and he actually stabs the man and the woman. Actually, the Bible says it goes in through the man and into the woman's stomach. So kind of implying they're kind of on top of each other. And as soon as he does that, the plague is stopped. And was, when I was reading that, there were a couple of things that really spoke to me. The first was his singular act stopped the plague. And sometimes as Christians, we may think that our, our singular stand for righteousness makes no good difference. But God can honor just one righteous act and cause it to make a difference. Wow. That's amazing, right? So Phineas makes a stand. And then the rest of the chat talks about how the Lord then says that through Phineas, the rest of the priesthood, that's the descendant that the rest of the priesthood will go through. And what a way to be remembered in history, right? That is just um, amazing. So I know that in some ways, this chapter is a little dark because it dark, deals with a really dark subject. But I really want us to remember um, and see that... Our sin can lead us astray. And I know that sometimes, um, I once heard someone tell this joke, they were going to, two people arrive a little late for church one morning and the devil's outside the doors and he's crying. And they're like, why are you crying? And he's like, they blame me for everything in there. And I know that's a little bit tongue in cheek, but the reality is sometimes we like to point fingers everywhere else instead of actually going, okay, God, what is the sin in my heart? Um, I look at Israel and I think, how horrible. And then I think, how easily we can go down that very same road as well, but for Jesus. So I really want to encourage us today that we need to hug that center line, that we need to keep looking to Jesus. And um, before we go any further, I just want us to play this spoken word video. It covers the book of Numbers. And I know that it, it's a little somber at the beginning. Please stay to the end because the wording at the end we'll talk about later. It is so incredible. Thank you. 
book of Numbers opens with God speaking to Moses in the wilderness. And though it does begin with a census in which God has Moses count the number of men who would go into Canaan on the offensive, Numbers is not about figures and digits. It's about Israel in the wilderness and their unwillingness to follow God and his commandments. The main place we see this is when God sends Israel to travel to the land of promise, to drive out the inhabitants and live with his presence in the place pledged to Abraham back in Genesis. So upon arrival at the border of Canaan, God told Moses to send men to spy out the land to which he was soon to take them. Here they were, God's chosen civilization, former slaves saved from Egypt's domination on the cusp of entering the promise God had made to generation after generation. But something would soon change them. The spies returned and reported that the inhabitants were too strong. They were like giants. No matter who their God was, Israel could never triumph. And so the people disobeyed. They would not enter. They would not be compliant. They would not trust God or follow his guidance. And so God promised a punishment. These people would not receive the land of promise, but would die outside it in the wilderness. All those who witnessed God's miraculous works and yet refused to trust him again and again, none of them would enter into this promised land. But Moses interceded and God heard his cry. So God made a distinction. The younger generation would still enter the land, but everyone counted in the older generation would die. And what we find in the rest of Numbers is that the older generation earns this sentence. For what happened outside Canaan was not a one-time instance. Instead, Numbers shows us that disobedience was the nature of their existence. In fact, as we trace this people through the wilderness, we see a pattern take shape. We start to notice a cycle. God gives a law or command. Then the people rebel and disobey. So God brings a deathly punishment. But through Moses, intercession is made. Then it all gets replayed. In order to regroup, in order to regulate, God gives new commands and re-emphasizes the old ones he gave, only to see the people rebel again, fall under punishment, and need to be saved. Whether it was when God gave a commandment about the high priest, only to see a rebellion form when others sought to lead. So God sent a devastating plague, which was only stopped when intercession was made. Or when God doubled down with new commands about the priests and their roles, only to see the people rebel again against the commands and authorities he had chose. So God sent fiery serpents to kill those in this rebellion, which was also stopped only when God provided a way of intercession. This is the cycle in Numbers. This is its constant procession, commands, disobedience, punishment, and intercession. 
And when we see this cycle, it's easy to start asking questions. Why do they keep disobeying? Why don't they learn their lesson? Why won't they change? Why do they keep committing transgression after transgression? And it's because this is who we are as humans. This is the result of sin's infection. And so the punishment God promised came for all of them. The entirety of the older generation, no matter the intercession, heard God's commandments, chose instead to sin against him, and died in the wilderness. But the story of Numbers is not just about Israel. It is about all of us. So when we, like the younger generation, look at all this disobedience and devastation, we need to see that we are in the exact same situation. We all participate in sin's cyclical operation. We all have disobeyed and face elimination. We therefore will die outside God's holy nation. Like Israel, we are stuck in this cycle. So what hope do we have to escape it? For even Moses eventually sinned. Even he had his moment of rejection and denial. And since he could not intercede for himself, he would not inherit the land or join the next generation in their survival. So if it wasn't Moses, who would come and make a way of escape from this cycle? Well, the book of Numbers answers in an unexpected style. God speaks through a pagan named Balaam and prophetically explains the whole hope of the Bible. God would not punish his people like they deserved. Instead, he would offer them a blessing when all they had earned was a curse. Through Balaam, God pointed to a king he would raise out of Israel, who would bring them into the land promised to his people. And the king who would perform this delivering miracle is none other than Jesus, the only one who could finally break sin's cycle. He would do so by being sinless, by not falling in to its cycle. And so the word of God became flesh and entered into our sinful mess. But where we disobeyed, he practiced true obedience so that he could enter into the place of our punishment and be our true intercessor, our new and better Moses. For only he was worthy, only he was meritorious. So when he voluntarily allowed our punishment to fall on him, instead of dying under it, he rose victorious. So now Jesus is the way out of the wilderness. He is the way in to God's presence. He obeyed where we couldn't have, died where we should have, so we might enter into the place we never could have. So when the number of your sins are so stacked against you that you feel stuck in its downward spiral, remember that Jesus is interceding for you and working within you 
to once and for all break sin's cycle. Thanks, Lise. Isn't that amazing? I have yet to watch that and not cry. Those final words, oh, and I am going to cry, but here. Jesus is the way out of the wilderness. He is the way into God's presence. He obeyed where we couldn't have, died where we should have. So we might enter into the place we never could have. So when the number of your sins are so stacked against you that you feel stuck in its downward spiral, remember that Jesus is interceding for you and working within you to once again and for all break the cycle of sin. And so when I read that um, uh, Numbers 25 and I see how badly they've messed up, the reality is, but for Jesus, and for but the grace of God, there goes all of us, right? So that's kind of what I wanted to share today. And I just want to encourage you, just keep hugging that central line. Isn't God amazing? I'd love to see someone in the chats went hallelujah. The first time I watched that, I actually had to say that out loud. I was like, oh, hallelujah, God. God is so incredibly faithful. So that's my spiel for today. Thank you so much. Thank you for joining us today. A heartstrong disciple of Jesus is one who has been saved by grace and is becoming more like Jesus by abiding in Him, learning how Jesus lived, and following in His ways. One of the ways we are helping you become heartstrong is through the monthly training plan, which breaks down how you can practice and develop your spiritual disciplines. Each month, you will find the theme and the focus for the month, a scripture to memorize, a fasting and a Sabbath practice, all of your Bible study, events, and schedules and links, questions for personal reflection, and additional recommended content for the weekend. Of course, you have to be a HeartStrong member to access this awesome resource. So visit heartstrong.life and click membership to join. Let's become HeartStrong disciples together. One, two,